Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 415 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today I have with me Michael DeBernardis. He is a partner at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. We're going to talk about the Hughes, Hubbard & Reed 2018 FCPA and anti-corruption alert. But first, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? As you probably know, I've founded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm always on the lookout for new podcasts. If you wanted a podcast but really didn't know how to start, take a listen from our sponsor today, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business. And One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. We take a look at some of the key Department of Justice FCPA pronouncements from 2018, including the anti-piling on policy, the M&A safe harbor policy, and how to avoid a corporate monitor. We consider some of the key FCPA enforcement actions for 2018, including Petrobras, Credit Suisse, Panasonic Avionics, and Societe Generale. 2018 saw two rare cases at the U.S. Supreme Court impacting the FCPA, Cohen and Hoskins. We consider what they might mean for the compliance practitioner going forward. We consider the final decision in the U.K. on the ENRC case and what it means around protecting internal investigations. And finally, what does GDPR mean for FCPA and related anti-corruption investigations going forward? It's a fascinating podcast. I know you will enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I have Michael DeBernardis, I hope I got that right, um, from Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed, and he's here to talk to me about the firm's 2018 FCPA anti-bribery alert. So, Michael, first of all, uh, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Sure, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, uh, there's been a lot of commentary in 2008 that it may not have been that significant a year in the FCPA, that the numbers may be down and the DOJ may or may not be going in a different direction. But frankly, I found a lot of substance for the compliance practitioner, the private practice lawyers such as yourself, the uh, in-house compliance uh, professional. So I really wanted to use this to, to really explore what you and the firm are really uh, talking to clients about. So uh, could I start with asking, what is the Hughes-Hubbard 2018 FCPA and anti-bribery alert? Sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, the the alert, uh, it, it's an annual publication for us um, that we've been doing now for for about 10 years. Um, it, it's it's a resource for, for anti-corruption practitioners, for compliance officers, for other you know compliance professionals uh, that that really tries to as, as best we can uh, summarize uh, and analyze the latest developments in anti-corruption enforcement. Um, while it it focuses on uh, in the first place on on the FCPA, it, it really is is broader than that, and it covers sections on the on the UK, on on France, China, Brazil. Uh, there's a section, you know, you know, that talks about developments in multilateral development bank uh, sanctions and anti-corruption enforcement. 
in other international developments. Um, it, it, it it's over 160 pages, so it's not meant to be a cover to cover read, but uh, to really serve as a resource uh, and, a, and a place that that people that work and are interested in this space can go and 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 you know hopefully um, gains a better understanding of what's been going on recently. So that's one thing I really appreciated about it. It really is uh, hefty and got great substance. And if you want to go into the weeds, you can certainly do that. But you also really uh, lay out uh, uh, near the front of it trends, lessons learned, uh, and how this can be used really by the compliance practitioner. So if I could really start off uh, with some of the uh, things we saw, from highlights rather, from 2018. And, and I think we really have to start in November of 2017 with the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, uh, which was announced. And then moving forward, we had uh, the M&A edition. We had the anti-piling on policy. We had the Binkowski memo. And then at the end of the year, uh, we had some other DOJ pronouncements. But I was wondering if you could really sort of take us through that journey, starting with the FCPA corporate enforcement policy and where you see uh, either the DOJ changed, whether they uh, really put into writing what the, the practice was, or maybe even uh, form was following function, if I can use that phrase. Sure. No, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and you're right. We, you know, we cover all, each of these topics in the, in the alert. And, and uh, it's a little odd that we go back to November 2017, but um, for, for, for reasons I won't go into, uh, we're sort of on a November to November schedule with this alert. So uh, the the corporate enforcement policy was actually announced uh, in, in 2017, the day we we issued that 2017 alert. So uh, it, it fit nicely into our 2018 alert for, for this year. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the policies you just mentioned um, have, have really been uh, – raise questions for a lot of our clients, uh, for a lot of the compliance professionals um, that we have been dealing with, and and they really fit into the two buckets, uh, kind of as you referenced. One of them are uh, serious, what we consider to be serious policy changes and departures from the practice of, of the Department of Justice. Uh, the other bucket would be policies that maybe <clears> – <throat> Clarify or 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 formalize what was already the practice. So uh, the corporate enforcement policy, which which to, to us uh, is highlighted in the alert, um, was was one of the major developments um, in the anti-corruption space over the last 12, 15 months. Uh, you know, it, it formalized or, or made permanent if you will, the pilot program from, from 2016, uh, but, uh, which was a major change, right? This is a, a, a change in, in how companies should approach internal investigations and approach the Department of Justice because it really makes the, the calculus as to whether to voluntarily disclose a potential FCPA violation, uh, it, it moves the needle on it. Um, the, the benefits of voluntary disclosure are, uh, more clearly laid out in the corporate enforcement policy than maybe they were in the, in the description of the pilot program. Um, and, and the, the carrot of a declination, uh, and, and the presumption that a declination would apply if you voluntarily disclose and, and take the other additional steps, 
uh, is one that that has certainly garnered the attention uh, of our clients. Uh, and so we're getting a lot of questions, a lot of questions on that one. And we've seen it play out now over the course of, of 2018 with a with a few declinations. Um, I think from our side, we're still waiting to see how the Department of Justice may approach um, a, a case that is a little of a larger scale, uh, sort of some, some some higher value or larger scale bribery that's voluntarily disclosed, whether they'll be as willing to, to issue a declination in that circumstance. Uh, but so far, uh, it certainly is giving a client something to, to think about and consider. Um, you know, it, it, as we tell our, our, our clients and companies often is, is what it really does is put pressure, uh, and really added importance on responding to allegations of misconduct early so that you can kind of determine, uh, what happened and really have all your options on the table. Um, the piling on policy, as you mentioned, uh, is more of the, the first bucket. Um, you know, if you look back at large resolutions over the last two or three years in the FCPA space, uh, particularly resolutions that involve multiple jurisdictions, you see an effort by the Department of Justice to um, to allocate penalties uh, and, and to, to sort of split fines, if, if you will. Uh, they'll use the, the Department of Justice's uh, calculations, but then the, the fines will be, be split up. So as not to, you know, double or triple, uh, penalize uh, offenders. Uh, and really the, the piling on policy just, just makes that formal. You know, the, the department will, uh, seek to work with both domestic enforcement agencies and, and, uh, where possible with other foreign regulators to, um, to come up with a resolution that makes sense and to ensure that companies aren't being double and triple penalized. Um, and the same thing with, uh, you know, the, the, um, more recent, uh, changes to the, to the Yates memo, um, in terms of, of individual prosecutions, you know, in, in our experience, uh, the, the department, um, has not been strictly following the Yates memo in terms of, of making sure that companies, uh, identify every single employee that that has may have potentially been involved in the misconduct and and instead has been been focusing more on you know who who was substantially involved in this misconduct particularly at a senior level uh but throughout the company and that's really as a practical matter um the only way to do it it can become extremely difficult as you can imagine um to to run an investigation uh, you know, all the way to the ground to find out every potential employee who, who could have possibly been involved before reaching an agreement with the government. So, uh, that one I, I, I put in the bucket of, of sort of formalizing what, what they were already doing. And I think, uh, in announcing that, you know, that policy, you know, the Department of Justice even recognized that, that the change was really to, to reflect current practices more than to make any, any major policy changes. So you really said something that struck me, uh, Michael, in a, in a phrase that I really had not heard before, but I'd like to, to go back to it. And you said uh, that the corporate enforcement policy and the policies moving fo- uh, coming forward 
through 2018, move the needle on the decision to self-disclose. Mm-hmm. And what struck me is a couple of things. Uh, one, that, that's a great metaphor. But two, uh, the decision to self-disclose in many ways, I think, is one of the most difficult decisions that a board of directors, a senior management, or whoever in an organization has to make. And having someone like uh, yourself and Hughes Hubbard uh, counseling on these decisions uh, with this new information by the government seems to me the way you laid it out is that you can you can now tell a client or at least uh, counsel them that this is what the government says, that you you will uh, receive substantial tangible benefits that we can point to. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. Uh, um, You know, having it, having it in writing and and more firm than the pilot program had sort of laid it out is incredibly helpful when having those uh, discussions and, and really incredibly helpful for, as you mentioned, a board of directors or senior management when they're trying to make this uh, very difficult decision, uh, possibly, possibly the most difficult decision there is in, in this in this context, um, you know, as I mentioned, I, I think where it where the pressure comes in now is um, responding quickly and and thoroughly to to the allegations of misconduct when they come through, because uh, it, it's not until you really understand what happened, until you can make these these difficult uh, self disclosure decisions. Uh, and, and now the pressure is on to, to make those, to, to make that finding as quickly as possible so that you still have the option to disclose it before it leaks out or the government finds out on it uh, on their own. But with the, with the guidance in the corporate enforcement policy now, um, we're, we're able to really go into some detail. Uh, you know, you can never, there's no guarantees in this, in this space, but we can go into some detail and really lay out the probabilities of different outcomes for companies in order for them to make a decision, uh, regarding self-disclosure. So the next uh, area I'd like to turn to is we had um, really some massive cases last year. They may have skewed the overall numbers. Nevertheless, um, they were massive, and they had some very interesting uh, aspects. I was wondering if we might be able to visit about some of the key cases identified um, in the uh, FCPA and anti-robbery alert, and, and they're a lot of fun to talk about. So could we just maybe start with Petrobras? And so what were your thoughts around this? Well, you know, Petrobras, I think, is the the headliner for 2018, uh, both in terms of size, for sure. The the global settlement, uh, I think, reached almost 1.8 billion. Uh, but but it was also just really fascinating uh, from from beginning to end uh, for a number of reasons to me. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Petrobras, the Petrobras case, when you, when you sort of look at it, and, and if you think of it from a from a, a, a 30,000 foot view uh, for what it is, you know, it, it, you can make the case credibly that Petrobras as an entity uh, was the victim, right? The, the, the allegations are that, that employees at Petrobras for years and years and years uh, took bribes and uh, paid off politicians to, to help them con- keep their positions within the, the uh, within the company. Uh, so in a lot of ways, the company itself was, was a victim. Now uh, that's, that's probably why the, the charges uh, were not focused on anti-bribery, but rather books and records 
uh, and internal controls. And, and certainly, uh, when you look at the facts of the case, uh, the, the internal controls were over a period of, of many, many years lacking at, at Petrobras and, and, uh, led to this pervasive corruption that, um, you know, has not, has now not only ensnared Petrobras, but, but, uh, as you know, over the course of the last few years, uh, ha- has covered a, a large number of, uh, both Brazilian and, and international companies operating in Brazil. Uh, but, but it's really unique that the sort of the entity that, that is accused of taking the bribes is, is, is now facing an FCPA or at faced an FCPA case, which is just really interesting. Uh, but we also had a couple of other cases that you highlighted. Uh, Credit Suisse uh, really talked to us uh, once again about the hiring of sons and daughters and family members of foreign government officials. But it, here it had really the uh, rather unique aspect that Credit Suisse target, not only targeted, but um, tracked the profitability of hiring these sons and daughters, uh, which I had not seen uh, previously. But uh, leaving that aside, do you feel that uh, I often tell to clients that uh, you can hire a son and daughter, it's high risk, but simply because it's a risk doesn't mean you can't do it? Or, or do you think these cases take us in a different direction? No, I, I agree with you, you Tom. I, I think uh, it is it is hiring a, a relative of a as a public official is a, is a high risk transaction. Um, but, but it doesn't, it's not prohibited per se and per se. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's a, there's a analysis that needs to be done and an assessment of those risks that needs to happen. Uh, you know, Credit Suisse, um, you know, has pretty clear evidence, uh, from the facts that the, the employees were being hired, that candidates were being hired, Strictly because of their relationships with uh, their family relationships with important government officials, as you mentioned, you know they even track the profitability of of these various hires. Um, they also, you know, the, the pretty clear facts that the the candidates that were hired were not qualified for the positions that they had and were retained despite uh, really poor performance records, but. Uh, you know, we, we've certainly dealt with clients in the past, uh, op, you know, operating in, in, in some jurisdictions where, uh, it's very difficult to find a qualified candidate who is not related to a government official in, in one way or another. Uh, and really, uh, you know, if, if you put a strict prohibition on hiring, uh, relatives of government officials, uh, it, it would be really difficult to find you know, local talent that, that you could hire. So, uh, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that clients are, have a process to evaluate candidates to, to ensure that they're qualified, actually qualified for the position, uh, to make sure that they are, they are considered the same as, as candidates who do not have this important familial relationship. Uh, and, and to make sure that they're, they're compensated based on their qualifications in the market rather than some other factor. Uh, so I, I think the Credit Suisse case is, is really on one end of, a, of what is a, a, an important spectrum uh, in terms of hiring uh, uh, relatives of, of government officials. The uh, Panasonic Avionics case was just fascinating to me, uh, literally uh, – Corruption at the top of the organization. We had uh, 
CFO and CEO involvement in the bribery scheme. But uh, frankly, a lot of very interesting lessons learned, I thought, certainly around uh, uh, discretionary funds available to a CEO, override of internal controls, and then the uh, the use of uh, or ongoing due diligence uh, between the times that a company would uh, renew or hire a third party. Were there any aspects that, uh, of this case that you really uh, not only thought were interesting but have tried to emphasize to clients? For sure. I, the Panasonic case has become uh, a favorite of ours for, for training purposes because it, it's sort of chock full of of, uh, you know, lessons, lessons to be learned. But, um, one of them that, that we often talk about is, you know, it's really interesting in the, in the charging documents, um, they talk about the, the relationship with, with some of the key agents started back in the 1980s. Um, and, and, you know, when we're, when we are helping companies put in place due diligence procedures, one of the, one of the pushbacks we often get is is when we suggest the uh, you know look back exercises. So this can't just be a a forward looking exercise for new uh, agents or representatives, but you really need to go back and do diligence on your uh, on your existing uh, representatives. Uh, and 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 the business people often will push back and say that's why do we need to do diligence on entities that we've been working with for 30 years, 20 years, whatever it is. And I think this case illustrates uh, perfectly well why that's, why that's necessary. Um, so that that's one really interesting piece of it. Uh, the other, the other thing, and this is a really a theme I think that we saw throughout 2018 uh, and certainly we try to highlight in, in the alert is, you know, Panasonic did, as you mentioned, that they, they did have uh, ultimately uh, a due diligence process put in place. Um, and so it's not like uh, at the end of the day, they were operating completely uh, without any type of, of process. Uh, they were really criticized for, uh, one, not taking the process seriously, uh, making it very rigorous, and two, uh, for putting individuals, employees in charge of the process that lacked qualifications and training uh, on assessing red flags involved in representatives. And so it just really emphasizes to me um, the importance of uh, ensuring that, that you have the right people in place. Uh, there, is a, there is a skill involved, as you know, to, uh, to assessing and evaluating red flags uh, when it comes to, to third parties. It's a skill that can be learned through training, uh, but it, it's a skill nonetheless. And so you can't just throw anybody in there and hope that they can uh, run your due diligence program. And then, you know, the last piece that, that uh, you know, we've taken and really been able to use in uh, trainings and, and that type of thing, discussions with clients is, uh, you know, the, the, one of the fact patterns involved in this case involved um, the company engaging a former government official. Uh, negotiating with that individual while he was a uh, while he was a government official, looking at their contract, and then hiring him uh, after he resigned from the government shortly thereafter. And uh, when we when we advise companies that they should really take a close look at hiring former government officials, uh, we sometimes get, get get pushback about why you know where the risk lies um, with with somebody who's no longer a government official. 
Uh, and I think this just highlights it well. Uh, this is really the, the main risk is that you, you know, a business person promised him something, him or her something while they were still a government official. Uh, and so you have to look at this, those situations closely. And then Societe Generale, uh, several things uh, really intrigued me about this case. And one of those is the sovereign wealth fund issue. We have had previous sovereign wealth fund cases, um, FCP enforcement actions, I should say. But this case, uh, I've really used it as a teaching moment for companies that may be looking to sovereign wealth funds for an infusion of capital whether that be a stock purchase, whether that be a private equity investment or, or some, something else. Uh, so lots of interest uh, in this case, certainly in the, in the energy sector. But how do you see Society General, or perhaps I should say, how do you guys use it as a teachable moment? Sure. No, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head uh, with the Sovereign Wealth Fund issue. I mean, we've even it wasn't that long ago that, that uh, OXIF reached its resolution, um, and, and part of those facts involved uh, their interactions with the same, the, the, the LIA, the Libyan Investment Authority, uh, the same one that's involved with, with Societe Generale. So, uh, it, you know, the reality is, uh, typically transactions with, with these sovereign wealth funds more and more are, are really large transactions, huge dollar values, a lot at stake. Uh, and so there's just that, that opportunity and temptation when you're dealing with, with values that high. For nefarious action, um, you know, if you've paid any attention to to the allegations uh, surrounding the the one MDB scandal in Malaysia, we're seeing some of the same uh, the, the same type of allegations. With, with when you're talking about single transactions that can can earn you a profit in the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, the temptation for for a corrupt payment here or there is very real. Uh, you know, the, the other thing I think, you know, very simply from, from the, the perspective of SOCGEN that, that we have been, that we think is important, uh, is the involvement of the, the French authorities, the PNF. Um, you know, this is the first, the first FCPA case, uh, that, that they had, uh, you know, joint resolution, joint, uh, um, settlement. So I think, uh, it, it does send a, a signal. I think we anticipate um, more, more and more uh, enforcement by by the French authorities and more cooperation with the U.S. in, in terms of, of settlements. Uh, it's something we're really looking looking towards in, in 2019 and beyond. Uh, I must stop you there and congratulate you. You're the only other person I know who uses the word nefarious. So well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we had a couple of court cases over the past year, and those uh, certainly are not common in the FCPA space. Um, you want to talk to us about both Cohen and Hoskins and, and what you think they might mean going forward? Yeah, yeah that's, that's uh, you know, it's, it's always exciting in this space when there's a, when there's a, a court case, because as you mentioned, they're rare. Uh, so it's possible that, that we give them uh, too much attention uh, because they are so rare. Um, but, but both, both the Cohen, uh, decision and the Hoskins decision, um, I think are interesting for their possibilities. It, it, it's a, it's a bit of a wait and see game for both. Uh, you know, Cohen, uh, the, the, the big takeaway of, in SEC v. Cohen 
is that um, the five-year statute of limitations that applies uh, to, to the SEC uh, implies to, to certain types of injunctive relief. But slowly over the last several years, uh, the courts have been chipping away at uh, the the SEC's tools for for enforcement uh, in terms of of how the statute of limitation limitations applies, uh, and and it already they've already decided that it applies to to civil penalties, to disgorgement, to to uh, uh, declaratory relief, and sort of injunctive relief was hanging out there as maybe the last uh, the last piece that the five year strict five year statute of limitations did not apply to, and and Cohen suggests that it, that it does. Um, so, so if, if, you know, this other courts take the same position, it, I think it has the possibility to really, uh, limit the SEC's ability to look back at historic conduct. And, and as, as we know and have learned, um, often in the FCPA circumstances, it, it takes a while for the, for the allegations and the conduct to come to light. And so that can really possibly hamper the SEC's ability to, to get at some of these, these FCPA cases. The, the Hoskins case, uh, in the second circuit, um, is, is also very interesting for its, for its possibilities. Uh, um, I think at the end of the day, uh, all that the Hoskins decision may do is, is just put a little bit of an extra burden on prosecutors uh, in terms of, uh, uh, proving that the, the defendant was a, an agent of a, of a domestic concern or an issuer. But, the, but essentially Hoskins decided, uh, that prosecutors cannot use conspiracy or aiding and abetting theories to, uh, charge FCPA violations to, to individuals who otherwise would be outside of the jurisdiction. So, Mr. Hoskins was a, a foreign national, uh, had, did not come to the U.S., uh, so he, he was not a domestic concern. Obviously, he, he wasn't an issuer himself, um, and he did not take any action in furtherance of the scheme while he was in the, the U.S., so he, he wasn't charged under 78DD3. So uh, instead, he was charged uh, under a, a conspiracy theory that he conspired uh, with an issuer or domestic concern being the, the Alstom U.S. entity, uh, and aiding and abetting that he aided and abetted, uh, a, a domestic concern. Uh, and the, the Second Circuit said that that's not, you know, you can't use those theories to apply jurisdiction where it would not otherwise have applied. The, the, at the end of the day, uh, he still, the court was clear that he could still be charged as an agent of a uh, domestic concern or an issuer, even if he didn't take any actions in the U.S. So, uh, you know, it just means that the prosecutors have to take those extra steps of, of proving that the defendant, Hoskins in this case, was actually acting as, as the agent of, of the domestic concern or issuer. So it, it may not be a, a huge um, change. Uh, but, but in the past, we've seen cases in the past, uh, where companies or individuals have, have settled on the theory, these aiding, abetting, and conspiracy theories where, um, where jurisdiction otherwise would not have existed. Uh, the, the, the one that comes to mind for me is, um, the Japanese company JGC, which is part of the TSKJ joint venture, um, 
back several years ago, 2009 or so, uh, that I believe was, was settled a case entirely on, uh, conspiracy and aiding and abetting, um, jurisdiction, uh, as it, in terms of their cooperation and work with, uh, domestic concerns, including with, uh, KBR and, and Technip, uh, who was an issuer at the time. So, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see if, 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 companies are more willing to sort of challenge uh, challenge the deal. Uh, Michael, we had a couple of developments outside the United States that certainly will impact uh, uh, not only FCPA enforcement and investigations, but the broader anti-corruption investigations and enforcement. And I wanted to perhaps end our podcast on these two matters. The first is the NRC matter. What did you guys see around that case? Well, you know, I, I think... We, we breathe a sigh of relief, as did many other uh, practitioners in this space, um, as, you know, it all was restored to normal. There was the 2017 decision uh, uh, in the U.K. that uh, that basically said that privilege may not apply to um, to attorneys' communications with with. Uh, clients during the course of an internal investigation, uh, and that things like interview notes uh, may not be a privilege, really, I, th- I think, sent shockwaves through uh, investigations attorneys, regardless of where they were practicing. Um, so for for a good 12 months there or so, uh, there was a lot of worry as to, to how the whole, the whole thing would shake out because, uh, you know, Clients really rely on that that privilege. Um, attorneys really rely on that privilege uh, to to help really get all the facts out. Um, you know, I, I know that that uh, um, uh, there's a fear that it would really hamper the ability of of clients and attorneys to to get to the the heart of a matter uh, if if the discussion wasn't covered by privilege. So, um, with the decision of the the court of appeal. In 2018, I think it might have been May, uh, kind of restoring back the litigation privilege to um, to conversations and during the course of investigations, uh, particularly when uh, there's fear of a criminal investigation uh, following. Uh, really, I think it was was widely applauded by the legal community. And then uh, everyone's favorite GDPR. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I get to pontificate, but probably just actually speculate on this case a lot. But what are are you guys actually trying to counsel clients on around the uh, greater anti-corruption in enforcement and investigation space? Yeah, just caution. I, I think more than anything else, um, it, you know, there were already blocking statutes in place that that made um made investigations and and uh, e-discovery in the course of investigations a little more complicated uh and gdpr i think just adds to that um where uh where we used to really feel comfortable with with getting waivers um you know there's there's thoughts about whether that's that's going to be enough anymore uh, and so really just caution and, and documentation are the, the two things that we, we tell clients repeatedly. Um, you know, we really want to document the reasons for data collection and, and how data was, has been maintained and, and protected. Um, really, I, I think, 
the the for 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 Hughes Hubbard certainly, and I think for for most of uh, uh, of other firms, um, we've gotten sophisticated enough with our processes that we're comfortable that that we'll be within the the, the limits of of the GDPR when we conduct our investigations on behalf of clients. I think um, what what we've been trying to do is to educate clients on on these requirements so that when they're doing internal investigations on their own smaller matters or, 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 or whatnot, um, that they're very careful to, to make sure that they are sort of applying the same standards. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has just been a, a fascinating exploration of where we were or where we, I guess, where we were in 2018, but equally importantly, where we may be going in 2019. I wanted to uh, thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today. Uh, it, was, it was my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I've linked to the Hughes Hubbard 2018 FCPA and Anti-Corruption Report in the show notes. Check it out. It's a fabulous resource, only for 2018, but uh, going back further into FCPA enforcement and guidance from the law firm. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join me again next week where I have James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison and Forrester, and he comes back for the always fan favorite monthly international anti-corruption report the firm put out for December 2018. This is Tom Fox. I hope you'll join me again for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.